This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from Washington, sitting in for Josh King, here's Matt Bennett. Well, thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. I'm Matt Bennett. I'm guest hosting this week for my friend Josh King. In this episode, we're going to talk to two players in contemporary politics. The first is the man responsible for communicating for Democrats who are running this cycle for the U.S. Senate. The second is a multimedia star, a regular on cable news, and a highly regarded newspaper and online columnist. Matt Cantor is the Deputy Executive Director and Director of Communications for the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, the DSCC. He has been in the business at top levels for many years. He first joined the DSCC in 2011 during the last election cycle, arriving there after serving as communications director for Senator Kirsten Gillibrand of New York, former Wisconsin Governor Jim Doyle, and for the campaign of Oregon Senator Jeff Merkley. He is battle-tested, and he needs to be, because Democrats are in a multi-front war to retain control of the Senate, fighting from Louisiana to North Carolina to Alaska. After we get an update on those races from Matt, we're going to turn to Kirsten Powers. Kirsten is that rare bird, a Democrat on Fox News. She bravely ventures into the right-wing echo chamber virtually every night, appearing regularly on the Fox primetime and Sunday shows and mixing it up with Bill O'Reilly and Sean Hannity, Chris Wallace, and others on cable's highest-rated news network. Kirsten, who got her start in Democratic politics, also has a regular column in USA Today and another in The Daily Beast that focuses on politics, human rights, and faith issues. As her high-octane Twitter feed will attest, Kirsten is unafraid to take on the orthodoxies of both left and right, and she does so regularly. But we're going to begin with Matt Cantor, the DSCC. Matt, welcome to Polyoptics. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you, Matt. I want to start with kind of the big picture when it comes to the 2014 Senate races. There's a lot of hand-wringing going on in Democratic politics right now. There's a lot of predictions of doom. Oh, my goodness, we're going to lose the majority. We're going to lose a bunch of our members in uh, red and purple states. How do you guys at the DSCC respond to that, given that, you know, we're still pretty early in the cycle and lots of things could change? Well, it is pretty early in the cycle, and we wouldn't be Democrats if there wasn't a share of hand-wringing. And I think this hand-wringing is good because it's putting people's guard up and it's getting ready that, getting people ready to know that we have a lot of work to do between now and November. That said... I'm old enough to remember two years ago where where we heard similar hand-wringing about the Senate, that, that all the forecasters predicted that Republicans would likely not only win the majority, but certainly gain a lot of seats. And of course, as, as history shows, it, they ended up to go on to lose two seats. And why that happened is because of the unforeseen, that, that when these races fully engaged in the fall, voters were presented with a pretty clear contrast between two candidates and those contrasts favored democrats so i think we this is why we play the games right at this point at this point in the cycle in 2012 heidi heitkamp was only given an eight percent chance of victory and she went on to win uh uh, in north dakota john tester in montana was given only a 34 percent chance of victory and he went on to win in montana so we have a lot of optimism we have great candidates they're out pulling their their opponents, they're out raising their opponents, and we got a lot of a lot of game left to play here. Uh, right, you and Guy Cecil, who's uh, the executive director over there, 
had to respond recently when uh, Nate Silver, the the Svengali, the Swami of uh, politics and sports, uh, issued a prediction that Democrats were going to have a hard time in these Senate races. And and you pointed out that uh, they weren't right last time in, in a bunch of these races. They weren't. And Nate does awesome work. We're, we not only appreciate the groundbreaking work they're doing at the new 538 site, but have always been an admirer of his approach, which is a data-driven approach. There's so much in in, in the political news cycle that's not data-driven. And in our organization, we operate almost exclusively that way. The challenge for Nate when it comes to Senate races was foreseen in 2012, is that there is just such a lack of good public data in these Senate races across the country. And that makes these types of forecasts extremely challenging, especially the earlier you are in the election cycle. That's why some of these uh, projections have been so wrong in, tw- in 2012 and, and, and in 2010 as well, which was a, a, a Republican sweep. So what we, what we sought out to do was not disparage the technique, nor disparage even the analysis that I think Nate and 538 brought to the Senate landscape. But just to point people into the direction that, look, this stuff has been wrong before. The reason it's been wrong before is, A, there's not a lot of good data out there at this point in the cycle. And two, there's a lot of campaign left to engage. You know, there's such a substantive difference between a presidential campaign and a Senate race. And there's these candidates remain... uh, Uh, largely, especially on the Republican side, largely undefined. And how they're defined to voters will largely determine the outcome of these races. Right. And let's dive into some of the particulars. One of the marquee races this time is Mark Pryor, Democratic uh, senator from Arkansas, running against Tom Cotton, a Tea Party uh, congressman. Um, And I read Charlie Cook recently said exactly what you're saying about that race, which is there are Republican polls showing Cotton ahead, but the public polls, and there aren't very many of them, actually show prior ahead. And so really nobody knows exactly what's going on in that race. It's so hard to sift through the public noise. Here's, here's what I'll let your listeners in on, a little, on our little secret, which is that every single piece of data we have today shows Mark Pryor winning this race. Now, I don't want to sound Pollyannish about it. It's going to be very difficult. It's, I would even call it an uphill climb. It's a 50-50 race. It's a toss-up race. I don't dispute that. But Senator Mark Pryor remains extremely popular in the state of Arkansas today. That's after having more negative ads aired against him than any single incumbent, any single Democratic candidate in the entire country. They've made their arguments. They've talked about... His of the President Obama. They've talked about Obamacare. They've made their arguments about Senator Pryor and his approval rating stands at 50% in most polls still to this day. Tom Cotton, it's a different story. He is very well known and well liked maybe in the confines of the Beltway. But in Arkansas, he's been largely defined by Democrats. And he's defined about based on his positions, wanting to eliminate Medicare, wanting to eliminate student loans, um, his work for private health insurance companies before he joined Congress. So there's a lot that Arkansas voters have learned about him that, 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 peop- that the coverage in Washington hasn't reflected, but it is reflected in some of those public polls. So we feel very good about that race. We're going to be investing heavily in an aggressive voter contact operation in that race. Senator Pryor, I think, has run a terrific campaign. He's been raising the resources and getting to every single corner of the state, as he always does. Look, they, they know him. They know him very well. They know his family. They've known him for a long time. 
they don't know Tom Cotton. They're getting to know him, and what they're finding out is is highly objectionable at this point. What you're seeing in Arkansas, certainly in Louisiana, in Mary Landry's race, in North Carolina with Kay Hagan, in, in Alaska with Mark Begich, with all these uh, so-called vulnerable Democratic incumbents, is an extraordinary barrage of negative ads being aimed at them, mostly by outside groups, some funded by the Koch brothers. Uh, have we ever seen this before? Is this unique to this election cycle? And question number two is, are they making a mistake? I'm not going to ask you to give advice to the Kochs, but is it ridiculous to try to soften up your opponent in February and March for a November election? Well, you know, Democrats have always been outspent, and there's no question about that. But we've never seen this type of spending, spending of this magnitude, this early in the cycle. Um, some of the spending against Mark Pryor in particular began in May of 2013. Okay, that is just staggering. That gives, at this point in the election cycle, that's giving Democrats more and more hope and optimism because they've had their say. We haven't yet. We, we still get to have our say in the argument in some of these key races. In Arkansas, where we have been on the air and advertising a little bit more, it's reflected in the polling. It shows us ahead. Back to your original point, though, I think that... You know, if we had billionaires like the Koch brothers that were willing to spend a fraction of their fortune to the tune of over $100 million, sure, I'd rather have the advertising on our side than not. There's no question about that. But so far, what they've shown is that the Republican argument is essentially a one-trick pony. They think Obamacare, Obamacare, Obamacare. They think they can ride into the U.S. Senate on a one-trick pony. And I think they're going to find that voters aren't that's not enough to persuade voters, especially in some of these states where we have these strong incumbents running. Let's talk about Obamacare, obviously, because that's the thing you deal with every day. That is the thing your candidates are facing every day, as you point out, not just from their outside ads uh, from outside groups. But uh, Republicans in Congress have made no bones about the fact that they intend to try to keep the focus on Obamacare for the rest of the year, which, when you think about it, is not exactly what the voters have sent them to Washington to do to litigate something they've now been litigating for uh, six years uh, and losing. But uh, leaving that aside... What do you think is going to be the most effective response to those charges? And and really, it seems to me there's a couple of directions Democrats could go. They could uh, try to change the subject. They could try to argue that they're going to make Obamacare or the ACA better. Um, and or, and these aren't mutually exclusive, they could make a very strong case that, that the Affordable Care Act is good for the middle class. It's good for the people in their state. What do you think is going to be the most effective strategy, recognizing that it might be different in different states? Well, it certainly will be different in different states, and it'll certainly be different for each candidate because each is taking a very different approach to solving problems they see with the law. They, you know, I think most Democrats feel like we want to get this right. And if there are fixes that need to be made in the law, let's let's make those fixes. In fact, let's work with Republicans. Let's take repu good, reasonable Republican ideas to make those fixes to the law and make it a success. I think that the most important thing in these campaigns when it comes to health care is a clear contrast between whether or not we move forward and fix what's not working or go backwards and repeal the law, let private insurance companies 
discriminate against pre-existing conditions, charge women more for care, and force seniors to pay more for prescription drugs. That's what the plan would mean. That's what the Republican plan would mean uh, if they're successful in taking back the Senate. I think the biggest dynamic right now with regard to health care in these Senate races is tremendous voter fatigue. I think you see from the Kaiser poll that released in the last day or so, 51% of independents saying, let's move on. You know, we we have other urgent challenges to deal with in our everyday lives, particularly relating to the economy, uh, that we need you focused on. And instead, what they're seeing from Republicans is exactly what you said. Politicians waging an endless partisan battle just to score political points. So I think it's a net loser at the end of the day for them. The other message that you see a lot of Democratic campaigns talking about is where these Obamacare attacks are actually coming from. Who's behind them? Who are the billionaires and the and the millions of dollars behind these Obamacare attacks? And what is their aim? And that's where we get to this issue about the Coke agenda and sort of what the bigger picture here is for, is for voters. Right. And you've seen uh, Democratic senators, Harry Reid on the floor of the Senate. You've seen him doing it in press conferences. You've seen others. We've seen the DSCC going after the Kochs by name. And I guess the question for you is, how many voters know who the Kochs are? What is their name ID in some of these states? And do you think it's going to have an impact with actual voters? Or is that more of a a tactic to be used in the kind of uh, battle of the people watching at the moment, watching these races closely? Well, a couple of things on that. I mean, a national poll out this week actually shows the Koch brothers' name ID at 50%, which is which is pretty high and frankly higher than than I expected nationally. In the states where there are Senate races, it's much, much higher, rest assured, because they know who's been running these ads and they know because of the Democratic camp, camp uh, Democratic commercials in a lot of these states are highlighting that fact. This really isn't about an attack on the Koch brothers explicitly. What this is, is an attack on the Koch agenda and what it would mean for people in their everyday lives and drawing a connection for the voters between the Koch money that is pouring into their state to boost a candidate like Tom Tillis in North Carolina or Bill Cassidy in Louisiana to elect a candidate like that who would rubber stamp an agenda that would enrich the Kochs and Koch industries and these billionaires, and really at the cost of middle-class families. So it's, 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 at the end of the day, it's a quid pro quo argument. It's an argument about a, an anti-middle-class agenda that Republican candidates support. I think it's incredibly important to draw a contrast between the two people on the ballot. And I also think it goes a long way in helping discredit some of the tens of millions of dollars in attack ads that the Koch brothers and AFP are running against Democratic Senate candidates right now. It doesn't hurt that the Kochs look and act uh, for people like me who are old enough to remember, like the two brothers in trading places, you know, these kind of uh, uh, guys in their big high back chairs in the club. Um, scheming against the little man. It's unbelievable. Exactly. I mean, for voters, they know that the system is rigged for for a small handful of people at the very top. Who their names are and what they look like really doesn't matter in this equation. They know that they're spending millions of dollars to influence the system to benefit themselves and that they pay a price for that. That's they already know that. So the the exact name of who these individuals are, their actual name ID, is really not that important. 
Let's talk about another issue that has been uh, bubbling up in this campaign. Uh, if if the ACA and Obamacare is the thing that uh, Republicans have been attacking on, uh, one of the things that Democrats focused on pretty heavily in 2013, and, and it continues some in this this year, is income inequality. And I guess the question for you is, uh, again, stipulating it's going to be different in different states. Do you think that's an issue that really resonates with voters? Uh, or do you think uh, the president kind of moving into the uh, more in the direction of growth and opportunity and a kind of positive vision, which do you think is going to be the way that your candidates are going to be trending this year? I think what you see right now is Democratic candidates largely focused on economic development, job creation, and and supporting the middle class and their aspirations in their states right now. So that varies a lot from state to state in terms of what are the critical economic priorities uh, for for Kentucky. Allison Grimes is out on the campaign trail talking about that every day. Certainly in Louisiana, they're a little different. And Mary Lander, chair of the Energy Committee, is out there talking about those issues. Senator Pryor, Senator Hagan, Senator Udall in Colorado, they're all focused on economic priorities that are really unique to their states. That said, there is, there is a, a, I think, a broad trend among all of them, and that is they're concerned about making sure there's a fair opportunity, a, a fair shot for every single middle-class family. And that means making college more affordable and finding innovative ways to make higher education affordable for families, uh, uh, making childcare more affordable, looking at options talking about options to, to, to potentially cut taxes for, for the middle class to make life a little bit more affordable for them, and certainly addressing another critical issue for Democrats and, and increasingly for all voters, which is pay inequity for women. Uh, the Paycheck Fairness Act is something that's at the top of people's list. So income inequality is an important thing that I think a lot of Democrats care about. It's an important principle for us as Democrats. But I think what you, when you look at Democratic campaigns around the country, what they are most focused on is really creating opportunity for everybody, people, especially the middle class and people that are that are trying to get trying to make it. Uh, let's change gears here for a second. This show is, uh, after all, founded on the idea of optics in politics, and I want to ask you about a couple of the things you've already been seeing by way of uh, optics in these Senate races. One is what I thought was an extraordinarily effective ad from Senator Begich. Uh, that it's a kind of a bio spot about his life, which is unusual for an incumbent in the Senate, but but uh, one that I think landed pretty well. Talk about that and other ads you're seeing that either are working or not working. I think you're going to see a lot of similar ads to Senator Begich's ad, and I, I, I agree with you. I thought that was a fantastic ad. It'd be a fantastic ad in any race, but especially in a in a in a, a state like Alaska in a race like this, which is really I think largely going to hinge on who's the real Alaskan, who you know who's who's most firmly rooted in the state and understands the state's issues. Uh, you know I don't think they have a lot of appetite for the sort of political back and forth between the two national political parties in Alaska, and I think what that state does is shows that Mark Begich is firmly rooted in Alaska, which anyone who knows him, even Republicans, uh, even Senator Murkowski, admit that, that, that that's who he's firmly fighting for. I think you're going to see similar spots. Uh, certainly, you've already seen him in Arkansas with Senator Pryor talking about his own uh, um, um, his own personal religious faith and how that guides some of his uh, actions as a legislator. I think you're certainly going to see that from Senator Mary Landrieu, who does disagree with her party from time to time on issues that she think is thinks is really important to her state's economy. 
I think you're going to that when those issues are presented in an ad, they're going to be extremely authentic, and it's going to go right to who these individuals are as as people. Uh, you know, so much of the Republican attack machine and the Coke attack machine is to turn these guys into two dimensional figures. We have enough resources. Uh, on our side to prevent that from happening. And that's what the, that ad type of ad strategy does. On the Republican side, all you see is the same Obamacare attacks. Now, they made this mistake in 2012. Uh, they said over and over again as part of their uh, rebrand and their, and their autopsy that they weren't going to do this type of message strategy anymore. Um, so far, we haven't seen a shift from that strategy. I don't know if they'll shift from that strategy or not. Um, I'm perfectly fine with them them not doing that and continuing to air the same ad between now and November, which is what they've done so far. Let's talk about the Republicans for a second. Uh, some in the Republican field are fairly well known, like Tom Cotton in Arkansas. We've talked about him already. Uh, talk about who we're likely to see emerging from some of these primaries in other states, Alaska, North Carolina, those those kinds of places. Well, it's interesting. I mean, there, you know, this whole cycle has been a real war between the Tea Party and the GOP establishment. And largely the GOP establishment has won. And they've done it in two ways. One, they've been much more aggressive at taking at 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 playing in these primaries and funneling millions of dollars to their to their chosen candidates like a Tom Tillis in North Carolina. But the other way that they've done it is they've handpicked candidates that are just much more conservative ideologically than they would have endorsed a couple years back. There's a big difference between a Charlie Crist and a Tom Cotton and I or a Cory Gardner. Uh, Cory Gardner, you know, has a number of positions, particularly on personhood and contraception, that make him very popular with the far right, but but um, but basically uh, 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 disqualify him in a general election. This is in Colorado. This is in Colorado. Uh, so I think that that some of those chickens are going to come home to roost in the fall. We saw this in 2012 play out, you know, with establishment candidates like Tommy Thompson winning competitive primaries in Wisconsin. The establishment thought they were home free after he won the primary. What they didn't realize is all the crazy stuff he said to win that primary. So in the fall, you know, they woke up to see on television ad campaigns with with video footage of Tommy Thompson and Tea Party rallies talking about how he wanted to end Medicare and Social Security. That was a big problem for them. I think we're going to see similar types of things come out. Look, I assume Tom Tillis is going to be the nominee in North Carolina, handedly. Um, the problem is, is Tom Tillis has said so many egregious things in North Carolina these last couple of weeks in order to win that primary. And I think we're going to see a lot more of those comments come the fall. It's fascinating what's going on in North Carolina. I mean, you have a Republican Party in North Carolina, including the governor and certainly the state legislature, that has just veered far to the right. They've passed some of the craziest, uh, in my humble Democratic opinion, craziest laws in the country. And yet it's a state that's kind of trending back towards the center in presidential politics and statewide politics. And it's going to be a really interesting race, don't you think, with Kay Hagan? Yeah, absolutely. I think that North Carolina is uh, is in, is uh, almost the center of the political universe in some regard. Tom Tillis, you know, is 
you look at him and you think he's like this this country club Republican of old. The problem is, is he not only carries all the baggage of the sort of extreme agenda in Raleigh that you reference, but also some of the quid pro quo ethics scandals that have gone on there in the state legislature. Look, there's a reason he's so unpopular, even with his fellow Republicans, and that he's struggling so badly in this primary right now. I assume he's going to limp out of it, but he's going to limp out of it having having testified to the fact that he thinks birth states should have the right to outlaw all forms of birth control. He's said that the federal government should just eliminate the minimum wage altogether. These are really problematic positions for him that I think are going to play out in the fall um, when he, when he's up against a terrific campaigner in Kay Hagan. Uh, let's talk about, for just we have little time left, talk about some sleeper races, not on Washington's radar, but on yours. What, what would be your pick for that? Well, I I think that uh, the the two sleeper races that I'm watching right now are in the Georgia Georgia Senate race. I mean, there is Michelle a Nunn. Michelle Nunn is a terrific, exciting candidate. Um, you know, she she brings so much valuable real world experiences to to the race, and she's exactly the kind of individual, reasonable, common sense, middle of the road person who should be in public service, who's dedicated her life to building large organizations and serving others. And she's an inspiring person. She really is. And she's uh, and with the types of demographic changes that have occurred in the state and the incredibly right, incredible rightward drift of the state Republican Party, uh, it gives Democrats a real opportunity in Georgia that's extremely exciting. The Georgia primary still has to play itself out, but I think from what we've seen already, no matter who emerges, Michelle Nunn's going to be a very strong competitor. The other race that I'm watching closely is actually in deep red Mississippi, and we're watching closely to see if Senator Thad Cochran um, can fend off this very aggressive Tea Party challenge that he's that that from Chris McDaniel and these and Club for Growth and a number of other right wing groups. Um, we have a very great Democratic candidate there who's very right for the state of Mississippi in uh, former Congressman Travis Childers. So so we're wa- that's another state that we're watching. And there's no question it would surprise a lot of people in the fall if we're fighting this thing out to hold the majority in places like Georgia and, and Mississippi. But that might actually be what happens. There is no doubt that would surprise a lot of people. Uh, before I let you go, I got to get you to predict. Uh, in the last two cycles, we've had Republicans blow themselves up in spectacular fashion in a couple of places. Uh, one by uh, talking about her witchcraft in her own television ads and, yeah. and others, uh, uh, older men venturing into the discussion about rape right. uh, with, to their uh, great discredit. Yeah. Who's going to blow themselves up this time? I think there are, there are a lot of potential blow-ups. I mean, I really do. I think that it's going to surprise people. I think that there are there are candidates. There are a lot of Republican candidates across the country that are just totally untested. The one that I would that I'm on watch for, though, we talked about a lot on this program is Tom Tillis. I just I th- every time that guy opens his mouth and speaks his mind, what comes out just doesn't sound right to people. And I think that that there are a lot of Republicans around the country that have, think that this guy's going to take him over the finish line. And I, I, I just don't see it. I think he brings a lot of baggage to the table and, uh, and uh, has a propensity to say a lot of problematic things. So I think we're going to see a lot of that come the fall. Well, you heard it here first. Uh, predictions from Matt Cantor of the DSCC. Uh, we will have him back on after the election and let's see if he's right. Matt, thank you so much for coming I on. Hope so. Thank you, Matt. Great to be here. 
people of the United States. This is POTUS. Let's turn next to Kirsten Powers, who joins us on the phone from New York, where she is preparing to go back into the lion's den of Fox News. Uh, Kirsten, welcome to Polyoptics. Great to be here. Uh, I do Fox spots occasionally, and I know that it can be tough on Democrats. Talk about what life is like to be one of the Democrats who are regularly appearing on their toughest shows. Um, well, you know, I've been doing it for quite a while. So I think if you would have asked me that question maybe 10 years ago, I might have had a different answer. Uh, you know, in the beginning, it was it was very difficult because I was used to, I was also doing other other uh, channels. So I was doing CNN and MSNBC and other things. And when I would go on those channels, I really, frankly, was almost never challenged. And so, uh, and, you know, as you know, we've known each other for a long time. I, I worked in democratic politics and I lived in a pretty, in a bubble, you know, where I really didn't encounter people who thought differently than me. So uh, it was pretty jarring in the beginning to have people coming at me with things I had, you know, often never heard before. And, um, you know, and I would often get thrown. Uh, now I've, I've been there long enough that I, I know how to prepare and I, and I know my colleagues really well, and we definitely spend a lot of time even off-camera talking about things. So, it's, you know, it's ended up being a great place to work, and uh, you know, I, I really enjoy the opportunity to be able to sort of spar with them. Who do you find to be the toughest sparring partners? Uh, you're on Bill O'Reilly's show a lot. You do mm-hmm. uh, some the Sunday shows with Chris Wallace. Uh, you do plenty of other shows as well. Which of the Fox stars do you think are the toughest to wrangle with? Well, O'Reilly, no question. I think because, first of all, I think O'Reilly is the one who, when I'm on with him, we are often wrangling. Uh, and on a lot of the other shows, it's not that's not necessarily the format. The host isn't necessarily the person who is coming after you. It's often another guest. Um, you know, or I guess Hannity would be another example. Um, though Sean and I have developed such a good relationship that I feel like um, we tend to be able to just, you know, be fairly lighthearted about it and talk about it. I have a chance to make my point, and um, I don't think it becomes as contentious as it does perhaps um, sometimes with O'Reilly. That said, I really, I love being on O'Reilly, and I love debating him, Um, but then I have, you know, other colleagues that I go on with, like George Will or Charles Kronhammer or Steve Hayes, um, who the format isn't so much, it's not uh, confrontational. It's just more we're stating our views and uh, we're disagreeing, and I think that that's um, that's interesting and they're respectful and um, it's it's just usually a very respectful disagreement um, versus becoming very heated. Mm. Now, on the someone on the other side of the partisan coin, you write a lot about faith and politics, and mm-hmm. I wonder as sometimes uh, you're pretty tough on Democrats and you challenge Democrats uh, on matters relating to faith and other things as well. Uh, do you get a lot of grief from your Democratic friends for things you write, things you say on Fox, things you write on Twitter? Uh, and do you feel kind of caught in the middle of those two worlds? Well, I think that uh, in the beginning I used to get a lot of it, and then I think people just realized that I wasn't going to st- stop saying what I thought. Uh, and they and I, we just sort of reached some sort of, you know, detente, I guess. <laughs> where we would just understand that this is what I was doing. But I think it was very hard on my Democratic friends in the beginning because most of my friends um, 
were operatives. So they were people who were in the trenches and were working in politics and were, were previously working next to me in the trenches. And so I think it sort of felt like, well, what are you doing here? Because why are you criticizing Democrats? That's, that's the enemy. And, you know, this is our side. And, and I had to, you know, really try to explain, well, I'm, you know, I've really made a transition into opinion journalism and I don't have any credibility if I don't call it the way I see it. And as you know, um, being at Third Way, there's a lot of disagreement within the Democratic Party. Um, I've read and there about are a that, lot yeah. Of, yeah, <laughs> there are a lot of differing views on things. So, you know, often my criticisms of Democrats are not necessarily, they're not conservative criticisms. You know, they're frequently sort of, you know, criticisms I think that people who are invested in the Democratic Party are also making, um, but aren't necessarily being heard. Um, on the Fox front, it's interesting because I have found my operative friends love having me on there because they recognize that how powerful Fox is. Right. And, you know, and so they're happy that I'm there. Now, they're not happy when I'm there and I criticize Obama. <laughs> so, but, you know, when I'm the rest of the time, they're very happy and um, have always been extremely supportive. So um, I haven't really run into, you know, anybody who said you shouldn't be working there or, you know, we wish you weren't there. Uh, let's go back to Faith, because you uh, are kind of carving out a niche for yourself as one of the most important thinkers and writers on the question of faith and politics generally, and in particular on the role of faith in politics for people in the center and the center left. Mm. What do you make of that dynamic, and has it shifted over the last couple of decades um, as social issues kind of wax and wane? Where is the role for people of faith, and how should people of faith be thinking about democratic politics? Oh, it's a big that's question. A tough, that's a tough question. Yeah, I mean, that's something I would probably ask you to, you know, I would love to know what you think about it. I, I think that it's um, it's a hard, you know, it's hard because I think the Republican Party has so identified themselves as being the, the party that's associated with, with, faith, with faith, particularly Christianity, you know, which is the dominant religion in the country. And, you know, and I think that the Democratic Party has had a sort of, you know, at least in the last 20 years, as long as I've been involved in politics, kind of holding it at arm's length. Um, you have your candidates who obviously will, you know, invoke God in speeches and things like that, but it's not really, you know, it's a little bit of a, a bright line, I think, in terms of you don't want to integrate it too much. And so I think that um, it's it's not an easy fit uh, for, for people of faith necessarily, um, but I think that that can change, you know, and I, I think it doesn't, I don't think that it has to be that way. Um, and I think if I thought, if I thought that, then I probably wouldn't still be a Democrat. Um, you know, I think that there are thoughtful people who are um, trying to engage the party on these issues. So, but seriously, I'm, seriously, I'm very curious. I mean, what do you think? Well, I, I think you're right. And I think that uh, the, role of Democrats, I think, uh, spent many years denigrating the role of faith in people's lives, mm -hmm. or at least being perceived that way. And I think that they woke up to that uh, as a, a movement and as a party about 10 years ago, uh, and have been making an effort. But it but when it comes down to particular issues, it gets stickier. And so, mm -hmm. for example, uh, we all recall when some priests refused to give communion to certain Democratic leaders, I believe. Right. Nancy Pelosi and John Kerry and others uh, because of their views on abortion and other mm -hmm. issues. What do you make of that as, uh, you know, from your position, not only as a 
opinion writer, but but a person of faith and a Democrat yourself. How should Democrats respond when uh, they are met with that kind of uh, resistance from religious institutions or leaders? Yeah, I, I think that it's, you know, I'm not Catholic, so I think that a lot of, in those situations, like, you know, I've tended to feel that, um, you know, I, I don't know enough about the theology of the Catholic Church to speak to whether or not that's appropriate. My complaint from, you know, just standing outside the Catholic Church has been that it doesn't seem that's being applied equitably. Right. You know, it's not, there are certainly plenty of um, Republican Catholics who, um, you know, have, even, there are even, you know, Rudy Giuliani is pro-choice, right? So um, I don't know if he was denied communion. And I think that you sometimes see this, this, what I consider to be a little bit of a double standard, that there are other probably Catholic, high-profile Republicans who are doing things that are not necessarily, you know, things that the Catholic Church approves of. So, but that said, the Catholic Church makes their own rules, and they, you know, they enforce them the way they want to enforce them. I just think that they should do them equitably and, and fairly. Um, I, I do, I do have a little bit of a problem of sometimes with, you know, if you are a Catholic and you're going to invoke Catholicism, um, you can't just invoke it for one thing. And so sometimes you will see that, and I understand the frustration of people when Nancy Pelosi will sometimes invoke her Catholicism on other things, but then when it comes to abortion, just pushes it aside, you know, and I think that can be confusing for people uh, because, you know, they'll sort of feel like, well, if it's so integral to your, the teachings of Catholicism are so integral to your life, I think we all know that this is a pretty bright line uh, teaching, you know, in in the Catholic Church. Um, But I have also, you know, saying I've been critical of Democrats, I also have been critical of of Christian leaders and most recently got really involved in this fight over these laws in Kansas and and um, Arizona on discriminating against gay people, um, and so it's it's uh, that is a that's a similar issue, I guess, in the sense that I think a lot of people um, of the sort of religious right leaders sort of look at me and say, "Well, you're not really a Christian, you know, because right. you're not you're not towing the line on this." And so, you know, it's and you, it's, and that and that's and when oh, you vote for Democrats and you know you vote for people who are um, pro-abortion rights and so therefore you can't be a Christian. So there are a lot of these sort of litmus tests that I find very toxic, frankly, um, and I think it's what turns people off um, from the church and from religion in this country uh, is this kind of behavior. But it's so prevalent um, that you have the people that the media kind of go to are the people that are always sort of the arbiters of, you know, who is a faithful person who isn't. Right. I mean, as you and I both know, it's one thing to be called a Democrat in name only, you know, a dino, yeah. and, and you can... You can uh, make your own judgments about whether our policy positions should or should not qualify. But, but when you're called a kino or a sino, or, right. you know, uh, that probably is a bit grating. I mean, I'm not, I'm not Christian myself, but it would yeah. really uh, rankle, I would imagine, to be told that you're not uh, practicing your own religion appropriately because your politics happen to be a different uh, way. Yeah, well, and especially because there's nothing. It's actually, it's substantively, it's not accurate. You know, there, there's nothing in the Bible that says, you know, whether you should be a Democrat or a Republican. That's just cultural. That's just Christian culture. That's something that has been taught, you know, to Christians, and frankly, in, in certain regions of this country, that 
the two go hand in hand. That was not an accident. That was not something that grew out of any religious teaching. That's something that grew out of Republican Party politics and Republican operatives, and it, you know, who who can who were like putting out voter guides in churches, telling people how to vote on the line item veto, as if God has an opinion on that. I think that's Leviticus, the line item veto. Um, so <laughs> exactly. You have written uh, in the Daily Beast in February, you wrote a piece arguing that Christian conservatives were actually misinterpreting the Bible in their opposition to marriage equality and and to um, Mm -hmm. rights for for gay and lesbians. Uh, Talk about that. I mean, do you did you do that with any sense of trepidation? I mean, you're not a biblical scholar. You're not a theologian. Mm -hmm. Um, But of course, I agreed with you. But how how tough was that for you uh, entering that kind of debate? Well, the one you're talking about I wrote with a friend, um, Jonathan Merritt, who's a, re- a reporter for Religion News Service, who actually has two theology degrees. All so, right. Yeah, so I, I did, but, but, and also I had done a lot of reporting behind the scenes, interviewing a lot of people, so I wasn't just, it's not like I got up in the morning and was like, here's my take on the Bible. You know, it was, <laughs> um, you know, I reported it like any other story, and it happens to be something that I, I do happen to know a lot about because I do study the Bible a lot. But um, but even saying that, I still spoke to Orthodox pastors who I trust and I, I know, you know, would tell me if I was wrong. So at that point, there was no trepidation because I was in so deep. <laughs> I had already written the one on Kansas, which went viral and created a total just went it was absolute chaos and then i'd written the one on arizona wait, wait, i can't let that go uh, talk about the, what was the chaos after the kansas piece oh it just really created a firestorm within sort of the christian like conservative christian world hmm. uh because they well for one thing i just i think that they've never really heard anybody make these arguments because what, what usually happens is democrats don't engage them um on like I, I am engaging them as a fellow believer, so I'm engaging them in. The, I'm, I'm basically saying, like, I, I actually think the Bible's true, and I think we should take it seriously. And I think that you're not really understanding what it says um, about serving other people. This is specifically about whether the Bible prohibits serving uh, a gay person getting married, and um, or you know, or any person who is doing something that you think is unbiblical. And um, and so I, I think that this sort of threw them because they're used to just having somebody who just dismisses their belief, you know, who right. just sort of says, you're a bunch of kooks, um, who are you to bring your Bible into anything? And I'm saying, like, no, bring the Bible into it, but let's just, just do what the Bible says, you know, and let's not pass laws to protect a religious freedom that's not necessary because the Bible actually doesn't prohibit this. And um, so that was, and that was one thing that really bothered them. The second thing was, I don't know if you remember, I, I, I made a reference to Jim Crow laws. Yes. And um, that, A, they don't agree with it. B, um, Christians are very sens- conservative Christians are very sensitive about comparing race and sexual orientation. And um, they just think the two things are not similar. I, I don't agree with that. I, I don't think they're perfect analogies, but I, I don't think they're dis, completely dissimilar um, in the sense that I think they're both inherent um, and intrinsic, whereas a lot of most Christian conservatives think that um, sexual orientation is a choice. So it's not, to them, it's something, it's not something that you were born with. It's not something that, you know, just is. It's something that you decided to do. So between those two things, it just really people were very, very, very upset. Like, I can't even stress how upset people were. 
I I follow you on Twitter. I can I have some appreciation for how upset they were. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and you probably uh, don't even post the, uh, the the least pleasant of those. Oh uh, no. <laughs> um, so obviously the question of Democrats and political leaders uh, intersecting with faith is uh, before us right today because uh, President Obama met yesterday with with the Pope. Mm-hmm. Um, recognizing that you're not Catholic, uh, what is your take on whether the American Catholic Church is going to uh, change in any way politically with the kind of um, seeming liberalization of the theological view of, of the, this pope, uh, but not necessarily a change in kind of doctrine? Yeah. I mean, well, I, well, one thing I'd say is I don't think he's—I think his theology is exactly the same theology—same— as Benedict's in terms of doctrine, right? So if you, if you look at previous, I don't think he's going to change the position on abortion or gay marriage or you know any of, any of those types of things. But what I do think about Pope Francis is that, to me, it's, and I've, I actually wrote a column about this, is that I think he's, he's so perplexing to people because he actually acts like a Christian. He actually acts like what the Bible says. And people are so used to Christian leaders not doing that and actually acting counter to the Bible, uh, that they're they're completely confused. They don't, they're like, what's going on? He's being humble and you know um, loving and you know all these things and speaking about people in a respectful way. He's the first pope who ever said gay instead of homosexual. You know, people think, well, this must mean that he doesn't actually believe Catholic teachings. Whereas I would say he's actually he's the real deal. You know, he is somebody who is actually living out his faith uh, in a really profound way. And um, and it's just, I mean, I'm obviously, I think it's pretty clear, I, I really admire him a lot because I think it's something that we're just not used to. We're just used to having, you know, religious leaders who are political operatives, basically, you know. And the view, I think, among uh, secular Americans who really don't know much about the Catholic Church was that, oh, John Paul II and Benedict have named the entire College of Cardinals. They're all conservatives. Nothing is ever going to change. And therefore, nothing is going to change in the lives of American Catholics or in the American Catholic Church. Do you think that there's any chance that if uh, Francis has a long papacy, that things actually will begin to change a little bit? Re- recognizing your point that it, he ha- he is not different uh, from mm-hmm. a doctrine perspective, but from a the perspective of openness to a, a wider range of people, gays and lesbians, people mm-hmm. who are divorced, etc. I think that there, I, I think there is very likely going to be a change on on the divorce issue in the sense that they are right now considering whether or not, you know, right now, if you're divorced in the Catholic Church, you can't take communion. Um, And so that is something that they are, or I think if, I think it's if you're divorced and you remarried, I can't remember exactly, but there's an issue around communion. And they are, they're, you know, having a synod where they all get together and talk about this, Uh, you know, the cardinals are spending all their time sort of thinking this through, and Francis has made it a top priority, so I think that that is something that potentially could change, um, and I think that that's not a minor thing, actually, because there are a lot of people who leave the Catholic Church uh, when they get divorced. So for him having this openness to divorce people and really trying to welcome them, and he recently spoke about divorced people and sort of criticized 
how the church has often interacted with divorced people and saying, you know, we need to not judge them, we need to walk with them and have compassion and um, share their burdens. And so I think that something like that could change. Do I think that there's going to be, um, you know, women in leadership? No. Do I think there's going to be, uh, you know, gay priests? No, I, I don't. I just, those kinds of things, I just don't think are going to change. Well, uh, before I let you go, I want to make clear to listeners that you write very broadly on politics. I've made you focus uh, on one aspect I find very interesting, which is the faith in politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah. you you write about virtually everything, and and when you go on TV, you talk about it. So uh, I'll ask you to leave us with a prediction. Uh, oh no, your friends. I'm out of the prediction business, Dr. Right. Hillary. <laughs> All right, no no predictions, then analysis. We'll call it that. Uh, okay. your, your friends and colleagues on Fox News are already dancing on the uh, political graves of uh, Democrats in the Senate. Mm. Uh, we had Matt Cantor on from the DSCC just before you uh, with a somewhat more bullish view of Democrats' mm. chances in November. How do you feel like this race is shaping up? Well, I mean, I, I, would, I would say it doesn't, I don't think it looks very good for Democrats. I don't, there was, I think the ABC Washington Post generic ballot question on the Senate was heavily skewed in favor of Republicans, um, and whereas the House was just even. Um, so I think, and the fact that the lay of the land, I just think, is sort of stacked against Democrats. You know, they're having to fight these battles on grounds that already, even if Obama was you know, doing well would still be difficult in a lot of these states, I think seven states, so, you know, that are red states, um, whereas the, the Republicans are fighting more on their own turf. So I think that it's, um, I mean, I'm not going to say that, that the Democrats are definitely going to lose the Senate because who knows what's going to happen between now and Election Day, but it certainly looks to be moving in that direction. Don't you think? Uh, I don't know. I was really? re- relatively persuaded by by Matt Cantor huh. and his view that uh, we got a long way to go and a lot could happen. And uh, the Republicans seem to be pushing in all their chips on the ACA, and maybe that'll pay off, and maybe it won't. Mm. Uh, yeah, but, that's true. I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, a lot absolutely can change, and um, you know, but I, I just think it's it's sort of skewed against Democrats to start, and then you add in the fact that Obama's so unpopular. Um, you know, and that the, the sort of the way things have gone with ACA just doesn't feel like very firm ground. Perhaps not. And uh, I'm sure you'll be asked about that uh, on whatever show you're doing tonight yep. on Fox. Uh, so good luck with that. And thank right, you so Matt. much for joining us. Sure. OK, bye bye. Well, that's it for another edition of Polyoptics. I'm Matt Bennett sitting in this week for Josh King. He'll be back next week. Have a great weekend.